And David said, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. The liturgy of the divine service, said 19th century essayist, satirist, and defender of the faith, G.K. Chesterton. The liturgy of the divine service, he said, is the democracy of the dead. And I came upon this quote in my readings for these sermons, and it struck me as simple yet profound. And it gave me think thoughts about how it might serve as a rightful reminder to have the proper historical view. For we always need to remember that we are here today only because of those who have come before us. That's one of the things we, I could have brought up a little bit on Sunday. That if the Holy Spirit is he is the only one who calls us to faith through the preaching of the word and the sacraments, well, we need to be brought before the Holy Spirit, and that is the work of our parents, our grandparents. And so the past has, uh, uh, plays itself upon the present, our present. Because for most of us, if it had not been for that past, of someone in the past, we would likely not be sitting here right now. And I think this is important because this is one of the most common sins, and I think we should call it a sin, uh, these days in our postmodern church. Now, I'm not saying that every generation doesn't have the propensity for historical amnesia. But such seems to be quite more prevalent these days. These days where the world is a simple finger swipe away and everything one might ever want to know about the past is at our beck and call. And so it's almost become a joke in the way that we have forgotten our past, which makes the current erasing of it quite easy then. And I, it's been forgotten not only in the world, but especially in the church. We have forgotten that we have come from a place. We have forgotten that we have come from a people. As a history major in college, I am maybe a little bit more attuned to the fact that nobody knows their history. And as I have served now some 20-odd years within the church, I have noticed, especially in the church, no one knows our church history. Especially not the stuff after the Bible stops speaking. And which is why, then, I like how Chesterton, who, though, was not a clergyman, yet would write, wrote often about the orthodoxy of the faith, puts it there. That the liturgy that we find in the divine service is the democracy of the dead. And I take his meaning to be that what we say and what we do in our present tense expression of the word and work of God cannot, he is making, be taken away what has been said and done in the past. That what we do and say today must include what has been done and said yesterday. It's because we are not an island on our own. We're not the only time of the church. 
Thus, who we are must be colored by who we have been. And this is important as we think about our Lenten study this year. Because truly, we're not simply here to explore and help understand the the why of the what of the liturgy. But why we are doing this is to finally remind ourselves that we're not alone when it comes to the body of Christ. And I'm not simply talking about the fact that whenever we join in the liturgy, we are joining with millions around the world at that very moment at times. But there's also another aspect of it. That we must forever keep before our minds that what we place on our lips have come from from brothers and sisters in the faith, most of which are only known, renowned, and remembered by God. That what we gather each Lord's Day to say and sing do not come from us, but has been said and sung as St. John saw in his revelation, that great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. In fact, this is one of the faults that many of us see with with the current way the modern church worships that they create new liturgy each and every week according to their own whims and desires. See, that separates themselves from the church Catholic. And that's little c, Catholic, that's the universal church. And so last week, as we begin our study where Lent rightly begins, and that with on our knees, with an ashy reminder of our death upon our foreheads, and the confession of sin on our lips. We understood there that we do such a thing because of this work of faith that has been brought and given to us. That in the confession, as we just did another form of it, we don't confess to gain the forgiveness of God but we confess so that we might be finally in the place to hear the forgiveness already purchased and won for us on Calvary long ago. This is why the church forever has been repenting. In fact, we're the only ones in all of the world that actually do this because we're the only ones that actually know we need to do this since only faith confesses the nature of one's own sinfulness. Because the world out there doesn't believe they have the stain of sin upon them. They call what they do accidents or indiscretions. But the church, the church comes before her God on our knees, already believing that we will find a gracious God because we are confessing the graciousness of this God who has been given to us already in Christ Jesus dying and rising for us. And which is why then, as we truly begin the divine service, the first words out of our lips are the words of the faith, the words of Scripture, the words that have been given to us from those very same people like us who once struggled with sin and talked about God. is as what Paul would say in Romans chapter 1, 
that it's from faith for faith that we begin our liturgy. And that's what the word introit means. You actually all know a little bit of Latin there. That's simply the word, that's Latin for entrance. That's the word for beginning. And that marks the true place where the service begins. Because as we discuss, confession, the corporate confession, is a newer innovation with the church. And how we begin our worship is by taking up the psalms, you see. And the introit is there to introduce the central thought or theme of the day, setting the stage for what the texts will be focusing on later. That the introit prepares us for the two central focal points of the Sunday celebration, Lutheran hymnist Karl Schalk wrote. And that is to hear the proclamation of the word and to celebrate the Holy Communion. This is why traditionally it was sung only by a choir. And when it was introduced in the 4th century, it gave the service now a sense of majesty because this would be the time that the clergy would be moving from the sacristy where they have vested to the altar to begin the prayers. And now in our current form, though we can, if you notice on page, I know I forgot to say, open up to one, page 186 in your hymnal to follow along. If you notice there, we can say an entire psalm just like we did tonight. But most of the time we have moved it to, to singing it now antiphonally. Either between pastor and congregation, or there are some congregations that still do the choir singing it totally. But it is from this entrance with the words of God on our lips that we move now to that next aspect, which are simply, again, if you notice, words of Scripture. The Kyrie and the Gloria in Excelsis. Now, if you note, there's the Kyrie drawn mostly from Mark 10, verse 47, picks up this theme of history, of this continuity of history. Because it echoes the cry of the faithful throughout the ages. And again, this is how we see confession simply being spoken by faith. That just as blind Bartimaeus once cried out, Lord, have mercy, so only those who trust that this Lord not only can but will be merciful are the ones who are crying such to God. Because the world doesn't. The world won't. I noted him last week, and I will note him throughout the study. Luther Reed, the, one of the great uh, study, uh, professors of the liturgy, of the Lutheran liturgy, notes that, this, that the, the, the Kyrie actually doesn't come directly from the church, even though it's in the Bible. The pagans of, would do the very same thing, crying out for their lords to have mercy. But the church saw a good thing in it and adapted it again by the 4th century because, as he says, it expresses our humility and appreciation of our own weakness and need. The Kyrie is a cry for peace, Arthur just notes. It's prayed in peace. Prayed in peace to this God who in his birth has now brought peace on earth and to this God who at his death and resurrection now brought peace in heaven. At Calvary. And that, of course, is what the Gloria then is all about. 
The first part of the Gloria is the grand song sung at the birth of Christ by the angels to the shepherds in the Bethlehem hills. And it truly begins at the beginning of our service because, in a way, it helps us move from the Old Testament of the psalm to the New Testament of the Gospels. For it's a response to the Kyrie, Reed says, which proclaims the glory of God and give voice to the joy of the believers in His merciful goodness by sending His Son to be the Savior of the world. That like we will later do at the Sanctus, our confession is that this God is the God of our history. The God of the Old is the same God of the New Testament. And it is only in Christ, as Paul points out today, that the fullness of the Trinity begins to be revealed to us as a God who has forever been working amongst and for His own. And the Gloria in Excelsis helps us confess this. And even though, again, it's even a little bit later placed in the liturgy, around the year 590, it is as what Luther spoke of it, saying that it did not grow, it was not made on earth, but it came down from heaven. And in this sense, then, it's the first part that as it takes us back to the manger, the second part of the Gloria in our hymnal, now takes us to Calvary, points us to the cross, connects the church year totally. Because we are pointed by the Baptist's long bony finger now to behold the very reason this God took on our flesh. Because there is truly no other reason that Christ became man than was to, than to die as the Lamb of God. That's what the entire salvation project begun in the garden was all about. That's what God has been working from from the very moment of all creation. That it was in the Son now who was going to become the sin of the world so that the world now might become the righteousness of God. This was that mystery that was hidden for ages in God that Paul speaks of in Ephesians. This was the eternal purposes of God that was realized in Christ Jesus our Lord because now and only in Christ do we have the boldness and access to go with confidence towards our redemption. Because now as we have faith in Christ, so it is bestowed. And so Christmas, and this is what the Gloria helps us with, makes us understand that Christmas cannot be understood without Easter. And Easter is inconceivable without Christmas. And so we begin to see with the liturgy here that as we begin our worship every single week, it's this understanding of the history that we come from, that only the church uniquely possesses, forms us, not only in who we are, but in what we say. Because though we are living currently, obviously, in the present, but our God is eternal. He lives outside of time. He's actually the inventor. He's the Lord of time. 
And so for him, the past and the future are forever, lives forever within his current presence. And thus it is his church now. His church actually finds ourselves wrapped up in this history that is right now reminding us what has been done in the past and placing us already into the future. Listen to David in Psalm 145 again. He understands that the God who has worked so much in delivering him and raising him up to be the king of Israel is the very same God who has been at work for all that he has made from the beginning. That in one one generation, he says, will commend your works to another. That we all will declare the mighty acts because this is the God who has made known to the children of man whenever they live. His mighty deeds. That his is a kingdom that is everlasting. And if we're involved and in place in this kingdom, it means that we now are everlasting. And all who look to him will find a faithful Lord in his words, a Lord who is kind in his works. So what David means when he says this, God is near and righteous to those who call like Bartimaeus, to Lord have mercy, perceiving and saving those who cry out to them, out to him because of their needs. And even when in Lent or Advent we might remove things like the Gloria, we do so because we understand where we have already come from. That we take special time and we, we, we change things up just a little bit to remind ourselves of the solemnity of the season, to prepare ourselves better and more carefully so that the starkness and the barrenness of Holy Week and the ultimate sacrifice of our merciful God isn't simply just something said, isn't just simply something believed but something that is lived, that is felt, that is confessed. And so when we refrain from singing our glory as we do so, not because we know we don't need to do so, but it's to help us to call ourselves, to attend ourselves to this word of God, to, be, uh, to have the muteness of our expressions of joy so that we might hear our Lord speak to us from his cross. That we can say we fast here during Lent. Even if we might be fasting from the foods we might eat. We fast from words that expresses joy for what we, our Lord has done so that we might draw closer to the sound of our own cries for mercy. So that we might hear our Lord speak to us out of our needs of repentance and forgiveness. And then when we begin to sing again the Glorias at Easter, well, they are more fresh upon our lips and sang with a greater gusto because we truly have been brought to our knees in the understanding of why and what they say. And so the church must never forget its history, you see. That as we gather as the church yesterday and today, 
We do so because we know what lies tomorrow. For who we are is not a surprise. And who we will be is not a wonder. For our God, as David sung, is the God who has been and is and forever will be the God of all creation and the Savior of those who believe. That it is throughout all generations, as Paul says, the one who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ever think and ask, this is the God who is still at work for us. And whether it's singing the psalms on our lips, whether it's crying out, Lord, have mercy, or singing our gloria in excelsis. You see, we do so because we understand that this is the God who has, who have and has and is working in his world and for his people. And this is what the liturgy helps us with. Bringing the words of Scripture to our lips, we are uniting ourselves to the past and lifting ourselves into the future because we know that this is a God who forever comes near to his own every time the church takes his triune name upon our lips. The God who is proclaiming to us that the forgiveness he wrought in the virgin born is the forgiveness in which he is gracious to us again today. And of the forgiveness that will indeed extend beyond even when time itself finally fades away. Glory be to our God alone. Amen.